Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and I'm back from paternity leave after the birth of lovely baby Phoebe. Thank you to Thea and Lucy for holding the fort here. They are now, needless to say, on holiday, which, as regular listeners will know, is something of a vocation for Thea. So with me today is Minister of Fun at the TLS, Ros Deneen. Hello, Ros. Hello, Stig. Is it fair to say that Thea's on holiday? Thea is not no. on holiday. She's already emailed to say, you're not allowed to say I'm on holiday. She's not on holiday. Well, She's at the BBC. Allegedly advocating for this podcast. Talking about this very podcast. I'm saying that it's my truth. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, I see. It might not be the truth, <laughs> but it is my truth that Thea is... She's not here, therefore she's on holiday. I see. It's my it's my Cartesian doubting everything. I'm doubting everything until exactly. proven otherwise. Exactly. She can come here next week, and but you can at least look her in the eye and say you you stuck up for her. I did. I mean, I would I would always stick up for oh, her. <laughs> Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. You can get all sorts of good deals out there, and please do subscribe to and review this podcast for we are a needy bunch. Coming up this week, what do you know about Descartes? He thought, therefore, he was, of course. He's dubbed the father of modern philosophy. But what else is there? Rather a lot, as Stephen Nadler will tell us. In 1739, Captain Thomas Coram established a foundling hospital for exposed and deserted young children. It's now a museum and gallery this summer showing Jodie Carey's installation called Sea, which appropriately touches on themes of absence and separation. En Liang Kong is in the studio to explain more. René Descartes is a familiar figure, so familiar that, like Beyoncé, he's known often only by one name, or like Dickens and Shakespeare as an adjective, Cartesian. He's the father of modern philosophy, the man who came up with the epigrammatic cogito ergo sum, and the champion of mind-body dualism. But, asks Stephen Nadler this week, who is the familiar Descartes really? His philosophy is not as straightforward as often advertised, and nor is his life story. According to Nadler, his various biographies tell us that Descartes was a devout Catholic, a Protestant sympathiser, an atheist, a solitary thinker, a political engagé, a soldier, a libertine, a materialist, a sceptic, a Rosicrucian, he was a revolutionary, a diplomat, even a spy. 
Nadler this week has reviewed Harold Cook's The Young Descartes, which seeks to place the man in his historical setting as a plotter who left Paris for political reasons to settle permanently in the Netherlands. Is that a useful way of considering him? Stephen Nadler is on the line to tell us. Stephen, hello. Good morning, um, or good afternoon. Good there. afternoon. Good evening. It's on a podcast, so people will have it consuming this at all hours of the day and night. Uh, the identity of Descartes, how fixed is it in the popular mind? And is it as simple as the man who said, I think, therefore I am? Well, if we're talking about the popular mind, it seems to be pretty fixed. Um, when you mention Descartes, let's say to the general reader, um, the first thing that comes to mind is the I think, therefore I am, and Descartes as the father of modern philosophy somebody who um, allegedly broke radically with medieval philosophy and put um, philosophical and scientific thought on a brand new path. Um, And there's some truth to that. I mean, a lot of these philosophical mythologies um, are grounded in in seeds of truth. But there's so much more to Descartes that if we think of him simply in those terms, we miss what was really important about him, and especially what his contemporaries considered to be his significance. And what was that? Well, there was a great deal of continuity. Um, you know, 17th century was, a, I think, in some ways, a revolutionary period in philosophy, but um, historical movements don't have these clean breaks and endings. No. Um, there's a lot of continuity between medieval philosophy and early modern philosophy. Um, if you look at the progress of philosophy in the 17th century, um, there is progress and there's some backsliding and there's some um, a great deal of dialectical development um, And not all of these so-called modern philosophers are on the same page on even the most basic issues. Um, The thing about Descartes is that if you were to ask contemporaries in the 17th century, who was he? Um, They would probably identify him more with a particular scientific way of looking at the world. Um, We tend to read, um, and especially in our courses, tend to teach Descartes primarily through the meditations on first philosophy, which is perfectly fine. Um, That's where Descartes tackles the problem of knowledge and tries to establish that contrary to skepticism, real knowledge is possible. And he goes through various exercises, um, including proving God's existence to validate uh, the human knowing faculties. Although not necessarily convincingly to a modern ear, the proof seems to me to be, well, therefore God must just exist almost. Right, and not even to his contemporaries' ears. He was accused, in fact, of being an atheist because his proofs for God's existence were perceived to be so bad that he must have been intentionally trying to persuade people that God does not exist. And so is he more of a scientist? I think your piece makes the case that it's better to consider him as a scientist rather than, say, a metaphysical philosopher. Yes, I think that's right. He thought that the epistemological exercise of establishing the foundations of knowledge was something you do once just to um, establish foundations for the scientific enterprise, and then having shown that the skeptic is wrong and that absolutely certain knowledge is possible, not just knowledge of metaphysical and mathematical and even um, logical truths, but knowledge of the world around us. Once you've done that and shown that that's possible, now we can get on with the real business of first establishing what are the primary metaphysical truths, um, what is the soul, what is a body, Um, And then going on to hopefully discover particular explanations of natural phenomena like gravitation, elasticity, the motions of bodies and so on. Why is his biography so hard to establish in in considering the amount of attention that he's been given, Stephen? Because he's constantly written about, he's constantly talked about. And yet the point that you make in in the piece uh, is we don't seem to know that much about him. 
I think partly it's just the the desire for every new biographer to come up with a, a particular angle. Some years <laughs> ago, I believe it was um, A.C. Grayling who wrote a biography of Descartes claiming that, in fact, what he really was was a spy. What's, what's interesting is that in the past uh, 10 to 20 years, which, you know, in the lifetime of philosophical writing, that's, that's a mere moment, we've had um, seven or eight biographies of Descartes come out. Um, and before that, um, you could count them on, count the biography of Descartes on a single hand. Um, but besides simply trying to find that new angle, I think Descartes himself is kind of cagey. Um, he does not reveal a lot in his correspondence about his personal life. You can't, you can't put together a story if you just want the basic facts. Where was he? Who was he hanging out with? What was he working on at this or that time? What was of concern to him? But because of the various sorts of correspondence to whom he was writing, um, he often told a different story. He often kept things hidden. He was writing to theologians. He was writing to academic philosophers. He was writing to scientists, uh, to musicians, to friends. And when you try to put all this massive material together into a coherent story, I think there are legitimately different ways of of looking at it. Some of them go a little too far. Um, the notion that he was a, a spy, I think, is not well grounded. On the other hand, uh, Harold Cook's attempt to put Descartes in sort of the social, political, and religious context, I think that's a very important thing to do when writing about somebody like Descartes. There's an interesting idea in the, in the book, in your piece, that the pursuit of absolute knowledge is the natural reaction of someone who who's spent a life in in the sort of fickle court society was his philosophical project do you think motivated by by the, the social political context to be honest i'm a, i'm a little skeptical of that i mean it's an interesting story to try to tell um and in a way it steps back from the 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 harsher spy story but I do think that Descartes' primary motivations were not social and political, but uh, philosophical in the broadest sense. Um, philosophy forever has been not the search necessarily for this or that, the solution to this or that particular problem, but the search for how are we to live a good life? What is it to be um, a, a flourishing human being? Um, and how can we increase the quality of our lives? This is the project as Socrates sought and uh, Plato and Aristotle in the end. And I think in some ways, if you were to ask Descartes, what is philosophy about? What is its highest goal? It's to improve human life. He would even say it's to prolong human life. He thought he could discover the secret to um, prolonging human life much longer than its natural term. Um, unfortunately, he died um, when he was in his 50s. He caught a cold up in Stockholm because he was being forced to rise at the ungodly hour of 5 a.m. But oh, for him, gosh. it was um, a very practical project, philosophy was, understanding the world, understanding uh, the bodies around us, but also especially understanding the human body, what makes it work, and what um, makes it flourish. But did he, did, human did he do that? Because I, I'm always interested, the mind-body problem seems to be uh, uh, one of those problems that philosophers love to, to dwell upon because uh, it's an unsolvable, uh, unprovable. And he's recognized as a sort of a founding father of the, of the mind-body separation. Did he advance thinking on it such? Has that changed really over the sort of the 300 years that followed? Um, well, in one sense, yes, we, we no longer look for the seat of the soul in the pineal gland. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I, and I and he, he, that, he didn't either, did he? Did, or did he? 
He did, yes. He thought that the, um, the pineal gland in the center of the brain was the, that was the, the spot where the soul directly interacted with the body. So the soul is this completely immaterial, yeah. um, unextended substance. Um, and so it can't literally um, have the shape of the body and be literally extended throughout the body. Um, and the body is unthinking extended matter. But there's this little gland, and the motions of that gland um, were established by God or nature to have certain effects in the human soul. And on the other hand, um, certain uh, thoughts and volitions in the soul were to result in certain motions of the gland and the motions of the gland would direct the the animal spirits toward pores in the brain which would then be carried out through the nerves to the rest of the human body the the interesting thing though is that i, I don't get the sense that descartes was very troubled by the mind body problem it was something that was usually brought up um, by his correspondents who wanted to know how he would resolve what seems to be a rather intractable difficulty how does something that that doesn't have shape or extension how does it causally interact with something that is physical and he uh, offered various responses to that but in the end i think what he was primarily interested in was knowing how does the human body work how does the blood yeah. circulate um, how do the animal spirits make the muscles move and he saw the human body itself if you if you take away the soul the human body is just a kind of machine like any other uh, body in nature. And I think this is Descartes' real contribution to advancing the science of human anatomy, that the human body is not some special, um, some special item that stands outside of the ordinary workings of nature. Um, so if I could talk about this forever, I, I find it constantly yeah. fascinating. Uh, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Ros, are you interested in this, the mind? I always find, I said, we had a philosophy issue, and I said, philosophers like to ask questions that don't actually matter. That's the point of philosophy, is to say, mm. how does the mind-body interrelate? And of mm. course, you can live your whole life with not caring about the answer to that. It's a problem that is a theoretical problem rather than an actual problem. Philosophers love theoretical problems because mm -hmm. no one really gets hurt. They just sort of potter around and offer different <laughs> theories. Do you care about this? Are you where are you philosophically excited? It is exciting. It's also interesting how Descartes, as as Stephen just told us, Descartes said it in order to get on with his science, in order to get on yeah. with his geometry. He, he 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 gave us this sort of explanation. We've taken so much from it. Yeah, we've taken so much. We still have the answer, though, do we? We don't know how the mind body interrelates. No, I think that. The re one of the reasons Descartes' ideas have been spoken about and way more books written about them in the last decade than, than before recently is because of things like The Matrix, because of that, cause that's, what he was, that's what he was talking about when he said maybe there's an evil genius running everything. Oh, actually, no, there can't be because God is good. Yeah. That evil genius idea, that's The Matrix. It's in so much of our culture, so much of our sci-fi. And because we've never answered the question, it's still really... I remember Tim Crane, our philosophy editor, he promised me he'd solve the mind-body problem. And we're like, yeah, kind of. We're doing the philosophy show, and I said, will you write about this? And he goes, yes, I'll do it. Uh, and I said, oh, you'll so solve it. And he sort of went, yes. And so I obviously... No problem. Yeah, I took it that he did. And of course, he, he then wrote this brilliant piece about... Because there's an argument that simply neural mapping, simply showing changes to the brain state mm. when people have different emotions, for mm -hmm. example, demonstrates that there is a physical reality to what's going on in the brain. Yes. But that still doesn't 
answer the question, what is the thing making the brain do that? Um, and how do you then have a feeling as a result of it? How does love exist uh, ephemerally and also as brain matter changes? Uh, and no one's cracked that. No. At least I'm not aware that they've they've cracked. Maybe they will they. let us know if they have. People should Maybe. let us know. Yeah, if, you, if you've solved <laughs> the mind-body problem like Tim Crane, the philosophy editor of the TLS, do uh, tweet us. Why not? Yeah, go for it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In 1704, when Thomas Coram returned to London after 11 years in America, he was shocked by the unprecedented levels of poverty, pollution and child neglect that he encountered. Life was hard and parents who were unable to care for their babies due to poverty or illegitimacy had few options. It's estimated that around a thousand babies a year were abandoned on the streets of London. So Coram wants to do something about it. He campaigned for 17 years before receiving a royal charter from King George II, which enabled him to establish a foundling hospital to care for and educate abandoned children. From 1741, when the first babies were admitted, to 1954, when the last pupil was placed in foster care, the foundling hospital cared for and educated around 25,000 children. During that time, there's been a strong and continuous link between the foundling hospital and the artistic community of the day, Coram's friend, the artist William Hogarth, encouraged leading artists to donate work to the hospital and George Friedrich Handel donated an organ and conducted performances of Messiah in the hospital's chapel every year. Today at the Founding Hospital Museum on Brunswick Square, you'll find a permanent collection of works by Gainsborough, Reynolds and Hogarth. And for the next month, you'll also encounter a series of installations by the artist Jodie Carey. Carey has looked into the archive of the Foundling Hospital and created various exhibits in response to what she found there. 
Enleng Kong reviews the exhibition in the TLS this week and he joins us now. And can we start by discussing the new exhibition and what you actually encounter when you walk into the museum today? Maybe we could start with, with the, the sea. Yeah, so this is an installation that takes place across the museum's lower gallery. In this piece, Jodie Carey um, is responding to sort of the history of the traces of the thousands of infants who have passed through the, the foundling hospital from the 18th century up until the mid, mid, middle of the 20th century. And she specifically draws on this history of fabric tokens. So when, in the 18th century, when um, a baby was uh, taken to the hospital, um, it would then receive a new name, it would receive new, a new future, it would receive new training, new, a new education, it would receive new clothes. So nothing of its previous life was uh, preserved, apart from a fabric token which the mother would cut out of either her clothes or the baby's clothes, and she would take one away, one piece away with her, and she would leave the other to be um, sort of saved in the in the hospital's billet books. And there was a there was a hope in that that if the if the family's fortunes changed, they could then at some point return and and claim their child again. Um, so and use the fabric to say this is proof that yeah. Yeah. Like Annie. Yeah. Did that happen ever? Well, occasionally, but I guess the, the sad uh, sort of part of the story is that uh, you know it was quite a rare occurrence mm-hmm. still. And so, Carrie's drawing on that history when she um, she she basically has taken thousands of fabric swatches which she's gathered from sort of secondhand shots from friends, um, her own, her own collection, um, and she's cut them up. And coated them in this uh, liquid slip, this 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 um, uh, liquid clay, mm-hmm. and then they dry and curl into these sort of very delicate leaf-like forms, which she then fired in this kiln that she built herself. This huge kiln that she she built in her her mother's field, and in the kiln the material burns off, so it leaves all that's left is a very delicate trace um, of the texture of the material of the of a little button. Um, or you know the site, the, the trace of a hem or stitching, and so essentially what you have are, is this uh, monumental installation of the negatives um, mm. left by all the all, all the, these pieces of clothing. What's the what's the effect? Well, I, I mean, I think it's a difficult museum to work with. It's it's obviously very powerful. It can also lead itself to sentimentality, mm. I think, as well. And I know the, the museum's sort of been very careful about um, how it commissions artists to engage with that history um, so if you go uh, you know if you walk around the collection you can see other artists who have sort of responded so there's uh, at, at the top of the gallery there's this huge canvas by Michael Craig Martin um, which is this sort of multicolored tricycle which is that sort of quintessential um, sort of symbol of childhood and mm. but and carries is much uh, it's much more understated it's about um, you know how we uh, remember or monu- uh, memorialize feelings of loss. Were you moved? Yeah, very, very. Yes, it's a very powerful piece. But I think you know above that, she she's making a comment on you know the ways in which we choose to build monuments to things. Um, and she has this um, you know she she once said about the way the ways in which we memorialize or build public monuments and sculptures um, even though they are designed to inspire a sense of reverence, glory we actually build public monuments as a way of putting things aside and moving on 
they never actually look like the feeling we have when we lose someone. So it makes it easier to walk away, kind of thing. By yeah, and I think I think there's a truth in in mm. in, in that um, there is a sort of act of forgetting in in the ways in which we build we you know the, that very cold marble like language which we use in in. in but is that necessarily a sculpture? bad thing? I mean, you can make an argument when you talk about national monuments. Yeah, that putting things aside from the past is a healthy thing for a society mm. to do. You're actually harping back to great military victories or fetishising the death that goes on in wars isn't a healthy situation. So I mean, I think it, memorialising can be helpfully forgetting as well as... I think it depends on the on the situation and, and uh, on the context in which you're, you're building that memorial to. So um, in 1995, for instance, um, the... German artist Horst Hochheisel um, had this uh, proposal, this very provocative proposal, for a, a German memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, where he actually, uh, his proposal was to blow up the Brandenburg Gate and then ground it into a dust um, and leave it there with, covered up by granite. Um, and that was a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a provocation, essentially, um, to how we, you know, we choose to uh, memorialise loss. And his suggestion was to sort of respond to it with another act of loss, which I think was, was you know, very powerful. And obviously even more powerful because um, there's no way that, the, uh, um, that we would ever, ca- you know, our governments would ever countenance a sort of public sculpture on that, on, you know, with, that, with that kind of concept. The ethics of sculpture really, have they always been pressing? Because it seems to me that now we're, we're constantly bombarded with should we have this statue of someone, should, you know, should Nelson's column be taken down because... He was pro-slavery. Should is that an issue that, that that all artists of installations kind of are confronting? The extent to which longevity or, or memorialization is is a, is a positive thing. Well, I think there's a long hist- there's a there's a long history, um, obviously, of artists working with with the idea of the monuments. Um, but this is the idea of, sort of building a counter monument to things. So it's not about um, you know pulling down a statue of Rhodes or. Uh, and so and so on. It's actually working in um, with that language of uh, public memorial or public sculpture. Um, and I think there's an element to which um, uh, Jody's uh, Jody Carey's um, C installation, mm-hmm. um, you know, very much engages with that uh, that language of public sculpture. There's something um, quite ritualistic about it all as well. Cause you can mm, go on. I went on YouTube so. and saw. You can you can see videos of her actually mm. making the work, mm. and it's you know there's another work we haven't spoken about yet, mm. the cord, yeah, which is oh actually maybe you could describe. Yeah, so um, this is a Jodie Carey has been working with uh, this process of earth casting, um, which is this very primitive way of of you know casting a, a sculpture, and it essentially it, it involves burying an item deep into the ground to create a very primitive mold. Um, and then pouring a molten material into into the ground and, and letting that cool, and then sort of re-excavating it. Um, and it's this it's a very um, raw and stable way of casting, but it also has a very kind of primitive power. It almost feels like you're you know something's been resurrected when you pull it from the ground. So she's got um, if you walk up the walk up from the lower gallery, um, she has a piece called Cord. Um, which is this floor-to-ceiling bronze where she has buried a length of a length of cord in the ground, um, and then very dangerously poured molten bronze into the soil. Um, and I said, you know, actually, you would, you should theoretically uh, cast bronze in, you know, a foundry. You'd use you'd use sand and you'd dry that off. Um, 
properly um, because when the molten bronze meets any kind of hint of any hint of moisture, it spits very oh. viciously. And and it's achieved this inc- you know incredible effect where it has you, you know it really does the the process of earth casting essentially memorializes the the soil in which it's been buried in. Um, and you can see the sort of the, the way in which the molten metal has spurted in different directions. And is the point around um, umbilical cords and cords between yeah, I think two families? That. Yeah, I think together. it has that. It has that. It has that connection. Um, but it's also, I think, a process in uh, which uh, the artist has been exploring a lot over over sort of rec- in recent years. Um, so there's another another work called Found in the. In, in, um, uh, 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 in, the, in the next room, um, where she's again sort of buried he- rolls of Hessian cloth, which is uh, often used by sculptors in the practice, um, and then poured molten plaster in to create these sort of quite eerie-looking totem-like figures. When you when you go and see the exhibition, because we're seeing in the news every day a sort of global climate of child separation hmm. is, is that does that add a does that add context and poignancy to your experience or is your experience of seeing Kerry's stuff at the founding museum is it more all about the past um well when i when i did see it i think it was it did actually it happened to coincide with obviously a lot of d- discussion around child separation hmm. policy certainly around that time that you know we, we had there was there was a lot of evocative imagery in the news, um, sort of crying children, um, which and and some you know maybe some of that may have um, pushed uh, kind of pushed reform of that policy as well. But so equally, it would just certainly have power. Some of that also turned out not to be accurate. Interestingly, the the picture I think used by Time magazine mm. of a crying child was a child that was uh, mm. subsequently reunited immediately with the family. I mean, it doesn't change anything. But right, and but the, this issue of accuracy of memorialization that was a very effective image the image of the crying mm. child but it wasn't it was a true reflection of the policy mm. but it wasn't a true reflection of reality well and also i think um the the dangers in 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 that kind of imagery is that they're often involving children caught up in huge international sort of conflicts or disputes um and you can see it in the there was the uh, image of Aylan kurdi yeah um, mm. which uh, this was the the, the 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 refugee child who was then on a beach, and it was the picture was sort of broadcast around the world. Right. Yeah. Um, or um, you know, recently we've been seeing um, another child, uh, the Palestinian uh, Ahad Tamimi, as well. So you know, these are essentially children who who are, in a way, the, the images have been sort of ex- are exploited on a on a sort of mass media level, and then uh, several years on those images of the refugee crisis for instance they don't really ignite uh, newspaper headlines in the way that they did you know three years ago and actually even at the time I, I i was fascinated by the reaction to that 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 picture didn't change public opinion about refugees no one cared about refugees until they saw the the, the, the this dead child but mm. the point is if you like to look at the opinion polls a week after that that the, mm. the British collective societal view of refugees was no more warm or welcoming after that image. So there's a transience to those images, and also there is your right to sort of you know there's a artists may you know can is often lends itself to sort of artists thinking about how they might respond to infants and loss. Um, so even with the the image of Aidan Kurdi, you know I, the the Chinese artist Ai Wei uh, infamously um, recreated the pose on a beach. Um, in a series of photographs, and you know, you know, from from my point of view, it was, it was a deeply exploitative 
way of responding to mm. to that image of crisis. This has a different history, of course. Yeah. But I do admire the way in which it has um, approached a subject that could, you know, could so easily become kitsch or sentimental, and done something very interesting in terms of sort of working with the language of memorials and and monumentality. It's a fascinating subject, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. It's Jodie Carey's Sea, which is at the Foundling Museum in London until September the second. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Enlian Kong and Stephen Nadler. Thank you to Roz too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Do make sure you pick up the paper, which has a focus on poetry this week. Next week, we turn our attention to Asia and the Pacific, among many other things, including psychedelic drugs. Toby Lichtig's been writing about that. Anything? Any experiences of psychedelic drugs you want to share? Are they the ones that make you see things? I think so. Yes. I don't need them. You don't need them. I don't know whether Toby... Toby's written a whole piece about it, so he's going to have to come to this podcast and talk about drugs. I asked Lucy, I think, a couple of weeks ago about whether she... She shifty. She was shifty. Unlike you there, which was completely confident and plausible. (laughs) Yeah, Lucy, she was so shifty, wasn't she? No, she's not. She wasn't shifty. Um... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I see unusual things, you know, without, anyway, without any help. Yeah. Well, 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 shall we get Toby on and, and ask him about it? Yeah. That's a good idea. Lovely. That's Toby Lichtig here next week. Until then, from Roz and from me, goodbye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.